Freedom doesn't need more cheerleaders shouting partisan slogans. It needs thoughtful, principled disciples of liberty. Deep down, we all know that freedom and liberty matter. This is where we discuss why they matter. It's time to elevate the discussion. Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, thank you for joining us for the Loving Liberty program here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Want to mention that ammo.com is one of our sponsors here, and I know you've heard me talk about their ammunition. Well, yeah, it would stand to reason, right? Because that's what they sell. If it was cars.com, we'd be talking about cars. No, it's uh, not just uh, not just physical ammunition though. And this is really important. As as much as uh, it's great to have ammunition on hand so that you can go out and either, you know, enjoy yourself, you know, a field or at the range or going to get training. Yeah, they've got the rifle handgun and and uh, rifle ammo, handgun ammo, shotgun and rimfire ammo. They've got all that. Great prices, very competitive, tons and tons of selection. But I'm also talking about their intellectual ammo. Terrific articles that have great relevance in our time and will help you become a more well-rounded person or at least a better informed person. You still get to make up your own mind, but uh, ammo.com is a great place to start. And so if you find some time on your hands, maybe trundle on over to their website. If you decide to make a purchase, there's a little pull-down menu right when you get to check out, and they'll ask you, would you like to donate 1% of your purchase to help one of these freedom supporting organizations. Well, guess what? Loving Liberty is one of those organizations. And it would mean a lot to us. It would mean a lot to me. I'd take it as a very close personal favor if you were to uh, click on Loving Liberty. All righty then. Let's jump in. We got a lot to talk about this hour. I want to start out with a quick one here. This is from Mike Meharry from the 10th Amendment Center. We've had him on the program before. I need to have him back again. What's the big problem with facial recognition? Now, my kids get a little bit geeked out every time I break out my iPhone. I don't want to make it sound like I'm doing a brag here, but I ended up upgrading my phone here a couple months back. And I went from an iPhone, what did I have? I think I had an iPhone 7 to an iPhone X. That would be 10 for those of you who speak in Roman numerals. And one of the unique features of the iPhone X is it's, it's all based on facial recognition. If I want to open my phone... It doesn't even matter if I'm in the dark. If there's enough light that it can see my face, it will identify me and it will open. Sometimes even when I don't want it to. And so it's kind of cool. On the one hand, it's semi-convenient. But on the other hand, facial recognition has a slightly darker side. And again, a tip of the hat to Mike Meharry for, for pointing this out on the 10th Amendment Center website. He says the Oakland City Council recently gave final approval to an ordinance banning facial facial recognition in that city. It's part of a broader movement at the state and local level to ban outright or at least limit this invasive surveillance technology. So he asks the question, what's the big problem with facial recognition? I mean, it's probably the kind of thing people want. If you don't have something to hide, you have nothing to fear, right? Well, he says, actually, there are plenty of problems. In the first place, it's just not very accurate especially when reading African-American and other minority facial features. In fact, it gets it wrong a lot of the time. Now, this isn't just theoretical musing. During a test run by the ACLU of Northern California, 
facial recognition misidentified 26 members of the California legislature as people in a database of arrest photos. But as ACLU attorney Matt Cagle said, this isn't a problem that can be fixed by tweaking an algorithm. There are more fundamental issues with facial recognition. Government use of facial recognition technology for identifying and tracking people en masse flies in the face of both the Fourth Amendment and constitutional provisions protecting privacy in every state constitution. Berkeley, California City Council member Kate Harrison is pushing for a facial recognition ban in her city. Huh, I'm surprised. I would have thought all the Antifa folks already were wearing bandanas over their face. All right, snark off. In her recommendation of the ordinance, she pointed out that the inherent constitutional problem that exists with facial recognition is it eliminates the human and judicial element behind the existing warrant system by which governments must prove that planned surveillance is both constitutional and sufficiently narrow to protect targets and bystanders' fundamental rights and privacy. while simultaneously providing the government with the ability to exercise its duties. She says facial recognition technology automates the search, seizure, and analysis process that was heretofore pursued on a narrow basis through stringent constitutionally established and human-centered oversight in the judiciary branch. Due to the inherent dragnet nature of facial recognition technology, governments cannot reasonably support by oath or affirmation the particular persons or things to be seized. The programmatic automation of surveillance fundamentally undermines the community's liberty. Now, if you're a freedom-loving individual, maybe you didn't think you'd say that, see the day that you would be agreeing with a Berkeley, California city council member. But I see her point, and I think she's right. As Mike Meharry points out, facial recognition puts every person who crosses its path into a perpetual lineup without any probable cause. It tramples restrictions on government power intended to protect our right to privacy, and it feeds into the broader federal surveillance state. And at its core, it does indeed fundamentally undermine liberty. Again, this is from Mike Meharry, published on the 10th Amendment Center website, I think that's worth considering. Now, I don't know the full story here, but I have heard some rumblings that in my home state of Utah, there are various government officials, starting with the attorney general, who are very much in favor of, no, 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 we want this, uh, we want this facial recognition technology. And you know where they want it? At government buildings. In other words, they want to do essentially a facial recognition search of every single person who comes through the doors of those buildings. Now, perhaps you're feeling a little bit sympathetic and going, well, Brian, come on. These are people who sometimes are targeted or threatened or harassed by people who show up at their buildings and make demands or want to videotape things or confront them. So maybe they should know who's coming through those doors. But I'm going to go back here to what uh, Mike McGarry points or Mike uh, Meharry points out. Sorry, I worked for years with a guy named Mike McGarry. Shout out to Mike. Hey, miss you, bud. Um, is that still not running a search, though, on everybody? It's kind of like the human equivalent of the license plate reader. 
which has become a staple in many police departments across the United States. One single police vehicle sitting parked by a busy thoroughfare can read thousands upon thousands of license plates in an hour. And what it's doing there is it's not it's not looking for, well, you know, we had a report of a a gray Toyota sedan, possible kidnapping, you know, an Amber Alert has been issued. It's nothing like that. They're looking to see whose registration is behind. Find some reason to go pull somebody over. Oh, this person may have a suspended license. Now, you can tell me, well, Brian, if a person is in violation, whether it's an equipment violation or maybe their their license is under suspension. That's the job of the police. And I wouldn't disagree with you. But the place where I would disagree is that we're going to strain every person driving past this particular point on this road through the same net that's being set out to catch the would-be criminal. It's just a little too convenient. Sorry, my dog gets a little bit bent out of shape when people show up unexpectedly. Nonetheless, here's the problem. The problem is that you're taking people who are accused or or not even believed to be associated with anything that is wrong. And you're treating them as if they are criminals. Or at least suspected criminals. Without any particular reason being given that would show why suspicion is being directed at them. Now, if you can't see the problem with that, I'm going to ask you, you know, it's not a matter of you have something to hide. It's a matter of why would the authorities be looking at you in the first place? I know it seems like a small thing. I know it seems like uh, it's it's just, well, come on, it's 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 a technicality, but it's your privacy. You do not need to be treated as a presumptive criminal who just hasn't been caught yet by your government. If your government believes you are party to a crime or that you may be involved in a crime, the burden of proof is on them to show that reasonable suspicion exists, that probable cause exists, and even then, they still need a warrant. In other words, the government needs to do its homework. That's how it's supposed to be. We'll take a quick break. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. If you'd like to join the conversation, 801-331-8113, or better still, come on over and knock on my door. I'll introduce you to my dog, and uh, we'll all become friends. <laughs> He's so protective. I, d- I don't even know what to, what to say. Other stuff that was on my mind today, this was a really interesting one. I, I don't know if you see this a lot. I don't know if it annoys you. It doesn't really bother me, but I do see it often. People taking selfies. I don't see as many of the uh, selfie sticks. Do you remember seeing this? The extendable kind of uh, wand or something that you can put your phone on and 
go somewhere and, oh, look, I'm taking pictures of this is me walking down the street. This is me crossing the street. This is me not seeing a bus coming. Here I am getting loaded in the ambulance. You know, it's it's like a whole documentary that you're filming starring yourself. And so I saw this headline here that read father loss and narcissism. That kind of plays into the selfies. Is there a connection? It's an article by Annie Holmquist on intellectualtakeout.org. And she says, sitting in the park recently, my contemplations were interrupted by a man wielding a large camera, three young ladies pacing behind him. Motioning to the bench on which I was sitting, he asked, can we use this for our photo shoot? Annie Holmquist's answer was, um, sure. Glancing over her shoulder as she left, she says, I saw the three girls freeze into picture-perfect poses on the bench she had vacated. Now, she says, I shouldn't have been surprised. After all, my favorite place for reverie doubles as a picturesque background for people to take pictures of themselves. When not sitting on the little bench, lost in my thoughts, I often see people posing in front of the waterfall or on the little bridge, preening themselves with selfie stick in hand. And she says, such a scene is now familiar in American society. It's also a signal that Christopher Lash's predictions made 40 years ago in his book, A Culture of Narcissism, have come true. A remembrance of this milestone anniversary was recently commemorated by Professor Jack Trotter in Chronicles, a magazine of American culture. Trotter, like many of us, recognizes a sad fact. The narcissism that Lash identified as a rising trend 40 years ago is now a full-blown epidemic. Reported self-esteem has exploded with over half of young people achieving a nearly perfect score on the Rosenberg self-esteem scale. A score 10 to 15 points higher than the historic normal range, Trotter writes. Counterintuitively, this rise in self-esteem is correlated with a sharp decline in reported happiness. Now that's interesting. As Annie Holmquist says... It seems that feeling overly good about ourselves also makes us unhappy when we engage with a world that doesn't share our high estimate of value. We all know these symptoms. The disrespectful child who tells his mother to shut up. The college student who thinks the world must accommodate her interest in an obscure degree. The young adult who jumps from job to job because he thinks the entry-level tasks he's been given are beneath his dignity. These are all common occurrences in today's culture. Dr. Boris Vettel, a practicing psychiatrist, provides Trotter with a striking insight into the underlying cause, the decline in the influence of fathers. Quote, with respect to the loss of the father and other traditional sources of authority in American culture. It does seem reasonable to conclude that this has also encouraged the rise of narcissism. When a child's every whim is catered to and his parents become primary sources of gratification rather than instruction, the child grows up into an adult, in quotation marks, who believes that the entire world revolves around him. The child does not learn how to patiently endure, how to strive for something higher than himself and how to tolerate frustration. He grows up into an adult who does not really live in the real world in the sense that he does not develop a true appreciation for other human beings, 
as being something other than mere extensions of himself. End quote. Now, Annie Holmquist says, a friend of mine once observed that you can tell what kind of a relationship an adult has had, uh, what kind of a relationship adult has with his father just by the way he carries himself. Those with good relationships reflect a confident stability. Those lacking a good relationship don't. And look, I've been guilty of uttering those words, you know, after, you know, seeing somebody who's having a really unstable moment. Well, somebody has daddy issues. And Annie Holmquist says, perhaps it's no surprise then that many young people would try to compensate for this ability or this stability rather by putting up a front, delighting in themselves and acting like they have everything together and under perfect control. These are the narcissists which populate our society. She says, we've worked hard as a society to promote equality, to advance women and minorities that have long been oppressed. But we've done this at the expense of our fathers and traditional authorities, arguing they deserve to be overthrown and given a back seat. And she asks, but if this is one of the root causes of the narcissistic society many have come to loathe, is it time for some self-reevaluation? Could the revival of good, solid, supportive fathers sound the death knell for our self-absorbed society? Okay, I think that's a fair question. And, you know, some people get really angry at the prospect of someone even saying this. Well, now, Brian, don't you understand? There are broken homes. There are, you know, patchwork families. There are blended families. And I get it. There, there are, t- <laughs> excuse me, there are times when things don't work out as planned. Sometimes due to divorce. Sometimes, you know, a, a premature death takes a father out of the picture. Sometimes he just leaves. We're dealing with human beings, and so there are going to be there are going to be exceptions to the rule. But why do we speak to the rule? Because generally, looking at human history, the rule works. And if you want to find homes where there are stability, you're going to find that there more often than not the homes where Both parents are present and active and influential in their kids' lives. Let's go to the phone, 801-331-8113. Hi, welcome to Loving Liberty. Hey, Brian, how's it going? Very well. How are you? I'm doing well. Um, I just had a couple thoughts on uh, what you're talking about, you know, based on uh, my own experience. Um, I know, you, you know... You know generally what's gone on, um, but for the for the benefit of the listeners, um, I have. Um, well, when, when I married my wife, she had two children from her previous marriage. Um, the the younger of which was actually born uh, during our courtship. The older was about two years old when we got married, and. You know, not not to toot my own horn, but the difference in the older child's behavior between the time that I came into the picture and now is um, 
stunning to me. Now, certainly stunning that someone as flawed as myself has been able to have as much of a positive impact on her as, as is apparent. Um, you know, she, she had no strong father figure in her life before um, I began courting her mother. And, well, as you've seen, you know, she, she still has her moments. I mean, she is a toddler, but her maturity and respect and, and just the, the whole way she acts is far beyond any of her other peers. John, can you hang with me through the break? I, I got to go to break here, but if you can hang with me, let's pick this up just the other side of news. Okay, we'll be back right after this. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. I've got my friend John on the line with me. And, John, we were talking about uh, the importance of fathers and the influence they can have on kids. You were talking about you have a blended family. And I think you were mentioning you can see a difference in uh, one of your your daughters, one of the daughters from your wife's previous marriage who had a father versus. Wait, let, let me let me just have you fill in the blanks here. You see a difference in the kid's behavior, though, based on having dad around or not? Um, I, I believe that that is the case. Um, you know, when, I, when I first came into the picture, um, she was uh, primarily, uh, just for different reasons, was primarily living with um, my wife's parents. And, you know, they... I, they try, you know, pretty hard to um, fill in the gap, but I mean, grandparents are grandparents, and, um, you know, they, uh, she just was, was not getting, in my opinion, you know, enough, enough discipline, and, um, you know, so when I when I came into the picture, you know, she was very disrespectful, even for a even for a two year old, and wow, <laughs> couldn't couldn't stand to wait for anything or be told no, and I, it was quite a struggle for a very long time. Um, but you know, now, you know, since we've worked with her, and you know, my wife has spent has a solid backup when she has to say no or put her foot down. You know, for the most part, she's extremely obedient and responsible, uh, especially for her age. Well, I would say she lucked out. This has been, now I want our listeners to know, I, I know John personally, and so this young lady lucked out when she got you for a dad. I can't really take full credit for that. You know, I, I uh, attribute that a lot to my father and my uncles and 
and uh, both of my grandpas were very, very good examples of, you know, being very loving and very firm at the same time. They, I think they all, from what I've seen, you know, struck a very good balance with that, and I just kind of fumble along and, and hope that I can do the same. Well, I, I appreciate you sharing your experience here on uh, on the program. Uh, I'm glad to be able to talk again. Hopefully that can help someone. Yeah. Thanks again. Great to hear from you. 801-331-8113. See, I like to hear stories like this because it it, it goes to show. Even if the situation isn't perfect, and I realize perfect is an ideal that none of us are going to reach. It shouldn't be, you know, it shouldn't be a big deal to talk about. But in the ideal situation, there should be a mom. There should be a dad. And I understand, Brian, there are different families, too. Why we have same-sex marriages and so forth. You understand, I'm not trying to put them down by acknowledging that the pattern that has been followed by most of humanity throughout human existence, a man and a woman together in a lifelong committed relationship has proven to be the most stable environment for raising the, their offspring. And you find it not just in advanced societies, you find it in even primitive societies. It is the rule rather than the exception. And I realize that's a terribly politically incorrect thing to suggest because we're supposed to ignore all that and pretend that, well, you know, somehow everything that came before us was wrong and dangerous and superstitious. I don't buy into that. Not at all. I'm going to shift gears here for just a moment. There was an article, actually, it was an essay by uh, Larry Reed. I'm sorry, I should probably address him by Lawrence W. Reed when we're not actually talking on his program. Carried on Tuesday afternoons here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. But he writes about how the individual should be celebrated. Why the individual should be celebrated. And I find that often this is one of the great starting points for having any kind of a meaningful discussion about what should the state, meaning government, What kind of role should it have in our lives? What is the importance of personal freedom? What is the importance of property rights? What is the importance of conscience? I want you to hear what Larry Reed has to say. He says, if it's a coincidence that individual begins with a letter that's also a closely associated word, it's a happy one indeed. Individual and I are inseparable. I is the pronoun used to refer to oneself as the speaker writer, thinker, or actor. He says, without exception, I is an individual, not a group or a collective of any sort. By the way, I wonder how that figures into the whole, uh, you know, validate my pronouns kind of movement. Something we can explore another time, perhaps. But Larry Reed says this fact is worth endless celebration. For the profound truth it represents, we should be thankful every waking moment of our lives. He says, I rejoice that I'm not a replica, an appendage, or a cog. Like each and every one of you reading this, he says, I'm a completely specific, utterly unique, self-winding, and inner-motivated one-of-a-kind. No other human in our planet's history was or is 
exactly like me or precisely like you either. He says, I'm not someone's robot. I will resist efforts to program me or collectivize me into something I'm not. If ever you catch me trying to program or collectivize you, he says, blow the whistle so I come to my senses. And then he says, I'm appalled at the ease with which some people speak of their fellow citizens as though they are liquids to be homogenized or tools to be manipulated, not by request, but by the force of political power. It's all for the nebulous collective good, they assure us. But he says, for some reason, they are willing to do us harm to achieve it. He says, in keeping with my individuality, I seek to be as independent and self-reliant, in other words, a burden to no one, as my abilities allow. I will speak for myself and gladly accept responsibility for my actions. And I have rights, the only kind of rights that make any sense, individual rights. I will never willingly forfeit them by jumping into a communal blender for the sake of some abstraction called society. He says, this makes me an enthusiastic and unabashed proponent of individualism and as fierce an opponent of collectivism as you'll find. In a 2013 article titled Snowstorms or Snowflakes, this is how he explained it. He said, a collectivist sees humanity as a snowstorm, and that's as up close as as he gets if he's consistent. An individual sees the storm, too or an individualist, rather, sees the storm too, but is immediately drawn to the uniqueness of each snowflake that composes it. And he says, the distinction is fraught with profound implications. If that point is lost on you, then he says, watch the 1998 DreamWorks animated film, Ants. The setting is an ant colony in which all ants are expected to behave as an obedient blob. And this is very convenient for the tyrant ants in charge, each of which possesses a very unique personality indeed. The debilitating collectivist mindset is shaken by a single ant who marches to a different drummer, namely his own self, and ultimately saves the colony through his individual initiative. Barbados, voiced by actor Danny Glover, is one of the ants in Ants who lives his entire life as an indistinguishable bit of the collective blob known as the colony. In his last words to Z, the hero of the story, voiced by Woody Allen, he says, Don't make my mistake, kid. Don't follow orders your whole life. Think for yourself. Reflecting on that poignant moment later, Z sadly confides to another ant, He died in my arms, just like that. You know, I don't think he ever once in his life made his own choice. And Larry Reed points out, Never to make your own choice or never to make a choice of your own, he says, is to me what hell must be like. I want to let that sink in for just a second. You've heard me say this before, and I still fervently believe. The partisan stuff we see, all the Republicans and the Democrats, the conservatives and the progressives, that's the battle waged before us, but it's not. The divide that really matters is the one that comes down to your individuality versus collectivism. And just like the Borg from Star Trek, The Next Generation, the collectivism side is doing the best it can to assimilate all of us and bend us to the will of the collective. When we come back, we'll talk about how individuality is uh, pitted against collectivism. 
and why it's in your interest and my interest to land on the side of the individual. Welcome back to Loving Liberty, 801-331-8113, if you'd like to join the conversation. Talking about individuality versus collectivism, thanks to a wonderful essay by none other than Larry Reed from the Foundation for Economic Education, whose show you can hear every Tuesday afternoon right here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. I'm going to take just a real quick tangent here, and I, just, I want to tell you, every single one of the hosts on this network is a true believer not only in the validity of liberty and of freedom of conscience and freedom of religion and private property rights and uh, what it means to live in a uh, moral and virtuous and free society. But Larry Reed is possibly one of the greatest ambassadors I have ever met for spreading that message, not just to, to everybody in America or everybody within earshot, but worldwide. As president emeritus of the uh, Foundation for Economic Education, um, he still has a very heavy travel schedule, but he makes time each week to do a show, introduces us to to various heroic, uh, um, historical heroes, rather, that uh, you probably wouldn't have encountered elsewhere, as as well as interviewing uh, some really influential movers and shakers who are doing what they can to promote the value of free markets and personal freedom. So that's my that's my recommendation for why you really ought to give a rip what this guy is saying, because it's a message he has been delivering around the globe for years, and he's very, very good at it, and I believe very sincere. So when it comes to individuality versus collectivism, here's what Larry Reed says. He says individualism embraces human nature, our inherent individuality. Collectivism attempts to thwart it. The largest, most horrendous mass murders in history were collectivist crusades against the individual. Stalin, responsible for a minimum of 20 million murders, is widely reputed to have declared that one death is a tragedy. A million is a statistic. Good example of how the collectivist disparages the individual. He tells us there's some higher moral good to the group, especially if he gets to define it or run it. Collective entities invariably reduce to very specific individuals telling other individuals what to do or else. Now, individualism is sometimes portrayed as antisocial. Maybe you've encountered this. But Larry Reed says nothing could be further from the truth. Fees Dan Sanchez explains, quote, as individualists have long emphasized, self-interest draws individuals toward mutually advantageous exchanges toward doing business with one another. And Larry Reed confirms, after all, it's not it's the individual, not the collective who decides to marry, to form a family, to employ people, to enjoy parties and other social get togethers, to create wealth and trade and to be neighborly in a thousand ways. And I love a quote that he supplies here from Ayn Rand. Do not mistake the do not make the mistake of the ignorant who think that an individualist is a man who says, I'll do as I please at everybody else's expense. 
She said an individualist is a man who recognizes the inalienable individual rights of man, his own and those of others. End quote. And so Larry Reed says, I invite you to celebrate the individual today and every day. It's who we are, the way we were made, the way we grow, the way we make a difference in the world. And toward that end, he says, I offer this, the reader this small sample of some of the best that's been said about the subject. And these are some really terrific quotes. Susie Kasem in Rise Up and Salute the Sun. You were born an original work of art. Stay original. An original is worth more than a copy. Oh, man. If you, if you ever struggled to fit in, meaning you wanted to make sure you were wearing just the right clothes or your car was just this nice so that you could fit in with the, the in crowd, you probably understand that. And once you get out of high school, you start to realize the wisdom in what she says. How about this quote from Henry David Thoreau in Walden or Life in the Woods? If a man does not keep pace with his companions... Perhaps it is because he hears a different drummer. Let him step to the music which he hears, however measured or far away. Or this quote from Joseph Rain in the unfinished book about who we are. Always strive to be yourself, even though the world is doing everything to make you like everybody else. Here's another great one from Ayn Rand from Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal. The smallest minority on earth is the individual. Those who deny individual rights cannot claim to be defenders of minorities. Here's a quote from Aldous Huxley in Brave New World Revisited. Nature has gone to endless trouble to see that every individual is unlike every other individual. Physically and mentally, each one of us is unique. Any culture which in the interests of efficiency or in the name of some political or religious dogma seeks to standardize the individual, the human individual, commits an outrage against man's biological nature. Here's one from somebody who was doing some heavy lifting intellectually. Ludwig von Mises on, in Socialism and Economic and Sociological Analysis. He said... All rational action is, in the first place, individual action. Only the individual thinks. Only the individual reasons. Only the individual acts. Here's one from Lezik Kolakowski in Is God Happy? The destructive work of totalitarian machinery, whether or not this word is used, is usually supported by a special kind of primitive social philosophy. It proclaims that not only that the common good of society has priority over the interests of individuals, but that the very existence of individuals as persons is reducible to the existence of the social whole. In other words, personal existence is in a strange sense unreal. This is a convenient foundation for any ideology of slavery. Wow. And then you have Isaiah Berlin in four essays on liberty to manipulate men, to propel them toward goals, which you, the social reformers, see, but they may not, is to deny their human essence, to treat them as objects without wills of their own, and therefore to degrade them. Here's a quote from John Galt <clears throat> from Atlas Shrugged. The vilest form of self-abasement and self-destruction is the subordination of your mind to the mind of another. The acceptance of an authority over your brain. 
the acceptance of his assertions as facts, his say-so as truth. Here's another quote from Henry David Thoreau in Civil Disobedience and other essays. There will never really, there will never be rather a really free and enlightened state until the state comes to recognize the individual as a higher and independent power from which all its own power and authority are derived and treats him accordingly. Here's one from James Fenimore Cooper, author of The Last of the Mohicans in On Individuality in the American Democrat. James Fenimore Cooper said all greatness of character is dependent on individuality. The man who has no existence other than that which which he partakes in common with all around him will never have any other than an existence of mediocrity. Individuality is the aim of political liberty. By leaving to the citizen as much freedom of action and of being as comports with order and the rights of others, the institutions render him truly a free man. He is left to pursue his means of happiness in his own manner. And this list of quotes wouldn't be complete without something from Adam Smith. This is from the theory of moral sentiments. Adam Smith said in the great chessboard of human society, every single piece has a principal motion of its own, altogether different from that which the legislature might choose to impress upon it. I will post this essay with the show notes. And by the way, he has a whole bunch of great essays for additional reading. But Larry Reed knocks it out of the park here. And as you may have guessed, this is where my heart lands as well. The individual has to be protected from the collective because the collective has a tendency to to behave in predatory ways. I don't know if it's because because it's easier to absolve yourself of any individual responsibility. What's the saying? No individual snowflake feels responsible for the avalanche. But the avalanche can still be extremely destructive. It wouldn't be possible without each individual snowflake being a part of it. I just know that a lot of us will face decisions in our day-to-day choices about whether to stand as an individual or surrender our will to the collective. Sometimes it's harder to stand as an individual. Sometimes you may find yourself actually having to step away from polite society. That's a pretty tough decision. Nobody wants to be the odd person out. But if you want to see free markets, individual liberty, religious freedom, private property thrive, you got to be willing to have the courage to stand as an individual. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network.